The text for the sermon is taken from the gospel. Render therefore to Caesar uh, the things that are Caesar's and to God the things uh, that are God's. I need to adjust this so I can aim at the person I want to aim at. Just kidding. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Well, here we are again uh, in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew uh, for the third time uh, already. Uh, that's a lot uh, for uh, one chapter to be showing up in the uh, uh, lectionary. It's clearly important to the fathers of the Anglo-Catholic tradition that we spend a lot of time in Matthew 22. Why? Well, first of all, they didn't come up with the idea on their own to begin with. Uh, and they had no intention of jettisoning the Catholic worship doctrine and life that had been established in the church through its calendar for centuries. My point being that the Book of Common Prayer was not the private work of some ecclesiastical genius laboring all by himself in a windowless office, but rather it was, the, it was entirely based upon the worshiping life of the church inherited from ancient of days. Uh, there are other good reasons uh, the Catholic Church held on to uh, this lectionary of readings for the Mass. Uh, in the Gospels, in particular chapter 22 of Matthew, uh, we have uh, uh, very big revelatory events that unfold for us in Jerusalem at a specific time, that specific time being uh, the last week of our Lord's earthly ministries. Prophecies uh, were fulfilled. Jesus uh, brought his struggle with Satan to an end on Good Friday. Uh, but what is uh, at the center of that, that last week, is worship in the temple. Go back and look at it. That's what's happening. It's all centered around the temple and Jesus is worshiping in the temple. In chapter 22, we have the account of our Lord's taking residence in what he well, refers to as a house of prayer, his own house, the temple of God. And he turned the money changers' tables upside down and threw them out. And then he proceeded to turn the whole world upside down. In the last, most sacred, holy week of his ministry of flesh, he draws attention once again to his Father's love and his love and solidarity with the poor, the sick, the blind, the maimed, uh, lame, and the outcasts of Israel. And he says, God's judgment will fall upon those who mistreat them and presume to set themselves above them. It doesn't take a theological a New Testament, a genius in New Testament Greek uh, to see over and over again uh, that if I set myself against the poor as a group, I've set myself against Jesus Christ and His Father. And if ever there's an unambiguous alignment uh, it is that if I by my word and deeds, my words and deeds, judge and despise the poor, the broken, the miserable, the unclean, the outcast, then I have cast my vote against Jesus Christ. He preached his first sermon, at least the first one we know recorded in his hometown synagogue, and the scripture he chose for that was Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because uh, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has uh, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And not long into his ministry, when his cousin John the Baptist lay in prison awaiting certain death, 
he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he were indeed the Messiah or had he made a mistake. Uh, one wants to clear uh, a clear and unspotted conscience uh, and clarity on these issues if one is about to meet one's creator. And Jesus sent a message back to John, and he said, Tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In chapter 21 and 22 of Matthew's Gospel, we see the full ripening of Jesus' ministry to Israel. Because that's where he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. A donkey! I mean, it's almost a joke if you look at it. It's kind of silly looking. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey mocking the pomp and glory, the vain pomp and glory of earthly rulers. He suddenly, publicly dismissed all the so-called powerful who had social status in Jerusalem, the wealthy Pharisees and Sadducees, the well-to-do, the well-connected families and politicos, the grand leaders of the city. And he said of them in 22, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God is taken away from you. Then the Son of God turned his attention to those to whom the the kingdom of God had come, the poor, the blind, the degraded out, the unwashed band of perpetual misery. And he opened his arms to them, and they poured into the temple. And that is something that the leaders did not like. It's forbidden, in fact, uh, uh, per Jewish law. Uh, As I pointed out before, uh, that is when the political machinery of Jerusalem went into overdrive, and a plot was hatched to trick Jesus into saying something that could be used against him. We have that in the epistle, straight up. Straight up in the epistle uh, for today. Why were they, do, why were they doing that? Uh, well, let, let me just back up and say this. They wanted to hatch this trick uh, to catch Jesus to use against him something that he says. But remember this, that it was the temple, the temple. Not Pilate's palace that was the most political site in Jerusalem. Why? Not because the Jews plotted against Rome there. Not because all they did was sit around and talk about politics either. Why was it the most political site? It's because they worshiped God there. And at this point in the account, the Son of God has taken the house and true worship had filled the temple. Listen to what I'm saying. True worship is political, whether you like it or not. True worship is political and it's subversive. And I submit to you that the true worship of God is the only source for true politics. As we worship God Almighty in the liturgy, we acknowledge that we are in St. Paul's words in the epistle today, for we are citizens For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will subject all things uh, to himself. How ironic that King Jesus begins his subjection of all things to himself by riding on a donkey 
into the holy city. When we sing the Te Deum as we did today, we sing to him as a gathered body of Christ and we declare that Jesus is the only king to whom we pledge our full and unflinching allegiance and we pray for his government to order our lives here and now so that we too may overcome the sharpness of death. And we worship as we worship God, as we bow our knee to him, as we adore him, we become aware of the voices of an army of martyrs. Isn't that interesting that the king has an army and they're martyrs. Martyrs don't pose a threat to another army with weapons, but they pose a great threat to evil itself. And their song has joined our song to the Father through the Son and by the Holy Ghost. And we see once again that we have become part of a cosmic struggle. A cosmic movement that is unstoppable and is ushering in God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. That's true politics. That's the measure of all politics. By inhabiting this perspective in worship, by the grace of God, we begin to understand why the old prophets warned the people of God not to put their trust in princes, not to put their trust in chariots or strong horsemen. After all, we have an army of martyrs. True worship begins to clarify one's understanding of reality. And so, as the psalmist said, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let me tell you, that continues to be the case. I don't care who the prince is. It was the gospel, the biblical understanding of reality that was entirely missing that day in Jerusalem as the plotters approached Jesus and placed before him the one person, most of them considered to be the most powerful, unrivaled prince of the world, namely Caesar. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Well, as you know, that, uh, that tax uh, had been paid with a coin, because I've told you this before, you know that. It was a coin minted in Leon. Uh, it appears that neither Jesus nor his disciples happened to be carrying one, uh, because Jesus said, well, show me the coin for the taxes. The Pharisees produced one. And then we have this quick dialogue that takes only a few seconds. It's fascinating because we all know this. Everybody in the world knows this. It's so, it's so, it's so archetypally burned into our, into our collective consciousness. But it was only a few seconds. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Just like that. I mean, just like that. Someone. Someone had pulled this coin out of their pocket. 30 seconds or so and it was done. As I pointed out many times before, uh, this silver denarius was directly related to the Roman imperial cult. Uh, the side-bearing Caesar's image had the superscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. What's a Pharisee got that in his pocket for? 
The flip side of the coin had a, a feminine image of an icon of the goddess Roma. Tiberius controlled the production of these silver coins. They were, in fact, his property, stamped with his image, and everyone knew that. And that's exactly why Jesus said, take that coin, that vile pagan artifact. It's Caesar's property. Give it back to him. Why do you want it? Why is it jingling in your pocket anyway? The Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, well connected, had not counted on Jesus turning their political trick into a theological dispute. They'd said nothing about God. Uh, why? Because their real religion, like so many people today, their real religion was politics. And it was driven by their love for wealth, for power, for drama, and for fear. Back then, Jerusalem might, might have, I mean, would have preferred death to allowing Caesar's image to be uh, publicly pasted up on the walls of the city of David. They despised seeing the imperial standard, that, uh, the Roman eagle with his wings spread out as they paraded through the streets. And yet, they had these silver coins jingling in their pockets. I'll end with two points. Uh, I want you to understand that Jesus, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Because I want you to understand that Jesus is not calling us to straddle two loyalties. Like you got two loyalties, you know, and, and they're equal loyalties. That's ridiculous. He's, he's just doing nothing of the such. Uh, you've seen over the years that Jesus Christ has not tolerated divided loyalty. Every Caesar, including the Caesar that calls himself we the people, stands or falls by skillfully playing upon people's love for materiality and for their need of security and their love of drama. By, contr by contrast, Jesus taught that the love of possession and wealth uh, were worth absolutely zero, and those who poured their energy into acquiring such things did not trust God. Uh, if I think that what I possess is what I am, I am mighty poor indeed. So give back to Caesar what belongs to him in the first place. Furthermore, this is another point I said to him, I'm actually making three, second one. Furthermore, one cannot be a good citizen of any nation unless one first and foremost understands oneself to be a citizen of heaven. As American theologian Stanley Harawas said, uh, if one's first allegiance is to the city of God, then every nation is a foreign nation through which the people of God are aliens on a pilgrimage. Final point is this. Quite apart uh, from the business of Caesar's coin, the church and Christians do owe a duty to Caesar. And that duty is to render unto Caesar a gospel account of his duty and then to assist him with intercessory prayer uh, to fulfill that duty. Now, unless you want me to, I'm not going to preach another sermon right now on all of Caesar's duty because there's a lot to it, okay? But you're getting the point that I, that, that I, I, I want to make. Uh, 
Both of those things should be without ceasing. We must never grow tired of telling Caesar how to rule uh, and, and where he is failing, and we must not grow weary in our prayers on his behalf. Uh, the petition uh, in the prayer book on behalf of rulers in our liturgy is very specific. We ask God to direct and dispose the intentions and decisions of rulers that sin might be restrained throughout the nation so that the church of God uh, may go about her duty of bringing Christ to the world. But remember this, last three sentences, okay? Last three. The church of God is eternal. Every nation is temporary and will come to an end. Every one of them. A nation may, over the course of its life, become a Rome or a shadow of Jerusalem or a Babylon. But no nation, including this nation, will ever become Zion, the church of God. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.